Just a reminder on the announcements, we have uh, the standard prayer requests for the next two or three months about Camp Arete and personnel and kids and travel safety and all the things that they need. Also a reminder, the annual church picnic is going to be uh, uh, three weeks from this Saturday, so April the 16th. And then there is no, not going to be a men's prayer breakfast this Saturday, but we do have a deacon's meeting this Saturday. I think that's it for announcements. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Uh, a couple of requests to just remind everybody we need to pray for Gene Brown. He's been going through some difficulty. And uh, we also need to continue to pray for George Meisinger and for his family because not only are they dealing with George's illness, but also his uh, son has a fatal uh, brain tumor. And that he's got about, uh, less I know, less than a year to live. So we need to pray for them and all that's going on with, with that family. And continue to pray for Chafer Seminary. A lot of positive things are going on there. So we're very thankful for that. Okay, after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your grace that we do not deserve anything that we have. We do not deserve a salvation that is so great, so magnificent. We do not deserve any of the blessings that you have given us, but they are given to us not because of who we are or what we've done, but because the Lord Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin on the cross and that we have his righteousness and His it is his righteousness which, we, which was imputed to us that is the... Um, source and basis for your blessing to us. Father, we thank you for all that we have in Christ and all that he has provided for us and the unique spiritual life we have in this church age. And Father, we pray that we might not take this for granted, but that we might uh, exploit every asset that you have given us, that we might be uh, tremendous examples of your grace, trophies of your grace, and that you might be glorified through our lives and through our ministry and service uh, to you in this life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, we did uh, a nine-lesson sidetrack into the doctrine of inerrancy. I did a summary to bring us back on track two weeks ago. Then, of course, we had the Chafer Seminary um, pastors conference last week and now we are going to finish up what I looked was looking at last time the last verse of the introduction one last phrase but I thought I would read something to you out of a little uh, have a little humor remember in the opening verse verses of the uh, of the salutation we have a verse that is often <clears throat> taken out of context and misinterpreted by Calvinists. And if you've been around Christianity for any length of time, you know there's a huge debate that has gone on for uh, centuries between Calvinists and Arminians. Before that, it was between Augustinians and Pelagians. And one side has a more deterministic view, fatalistic view, and the other side has a more free will view. Well, one day a Calvinist arrived at the gates of heaven, and saw that there were two lines, and one was marked predestined, the other was marked free will. Since he was a card-carrying five-point Calvinist, he strolled over to the line that was labeled predestined, and after a little while, an angel came over and said, well, why are you in this line? And he said, because I chose it. 
The angel looked surprised and said, Well, if you chose it, then you should be in the free will line. So our Calvinist was a little bit miffed, and he obediently wandered over to the free will line. And after a few minutes, another angel came over and asked him, Why are you in this line? He sullenly replied, Somebody made me come here. And thus we resolve the <coughs> conundrum between Calvinism and Arminianism. All right, as we're going through our study in First Peter, we have to be reminded again and again that what we're talking about in this section is not phase one, salvation. There are three stages in the Christian life. Justification takes place the instant we trust in Christ as Savior. Then we enter into, immediately into phase two. They are not inter, they are, they're connected, but it's not a necessary connection. The reason I say that is because in Lordship salvation, they have a necessary connection so that if you're truly justified, you will necessarily grow spiritually. That's how they connect the two. We, we say that a person is born again, they have new life, and then they have to decide whether or not they are going to grow, and they have to have some nourishment if they're going to grow. So phase two is the spiritual life, and then phase three is when we're absent from the body, face-to-face with the Lord. Saved is used three, in these three senses, saved from the penalty of sin when we believe in Christ, saved from the power of sin as we grow as believers, and saved from the presence of sin when we're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. First Peter is about phase two. It's not about phase one. He's not talking to people about how to become justified, but how to be delivered from the trials, the tests that are going on in this life. The conclusion to the introduction comes in verse 12. And we have spent a good bit of time on this. And last time, as I looked at this and we reviewed the, the basic themes and structure of First Peter. We talked about context and the importance of understanding context to understand what was going on. I didn't get to the point of talking about the last phrase. We read here, To them it was revealed, and that is the Old Testament prophets, it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were uh, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then he adds this interesting phrase, things which angels desire to look into. Things which angels desire to look into. Now that little phrase just opens up the whole door to the angelic conflict which I'm not going to divert down except to focus on this one aspect, that we are under observation. Uh, you think the NSA is watching you. Well, it's nothing compared to what the elect angels are doing. We are constantly under scrutiny, not only from the elect angels, but also from the demons. We are, as it were, living in glass houses all the time in terms of our spiritual life. And yet, because of the impact of the, of the enlightenment and the rationalist uh, worldview that came out of the enlightenment called modernism and postmodernism, we really have difficulty thinking about it as, as the products of the 20th century and the 21st century. On the other hand, if you go to a lot of, of cultures and societies in what we used to call third, third world countries, and now I think uh, Dan Hill last week called it something else, developing nation, some politically correct term like that. If you go to many places in Africa and India where they have this, this cultural heritage uh, of spiritism, they think that there's a spirit in everything that, that somehow animates the world around us. So their problem is they go to the other extreme and they try to identify some sort of spirit in everything and everything is the result of some sort of spirit activity. And he used the example, uh, if you remember that one of the, the, um, helpers that they had that worked, worked in the house that worked in their kitchen 
was cut two or three times over a period of weeks. She, we would say she cut herself with a knife. And he came in one day, and the knife was in the garbage. And he said, well, why are you throwing the knife away? And he said, the knife cut me. Because in their worldview of spiritism, that knife has everything has a spirit, and that is causing them to be cut. And so it's the old Flip Wilson line, the devil made me do it. And they see a devil, a demon, a spirit behind everything. And that what does that do but erode individual personal responsibility? And so we have uh, these two polar opposite views, and the biblical view is in between. The biblical view is that, yes, there are spirit beings who are out there who are alive and well and active, and they influence uh, how they influence, we don't know, but they influence mankind, they influence history, but all of this is under the control of God. So we see that that part of this is that in the church age and and, and throughout history, there are angels who are watching us, they're observing us, and the reason is because they are learning things related to God and his character, his, his justice, his righteousness, his love, and his grace that could not be learned within the framework of angelic creation. And so we're not told a lot about angelic history or angelic creation of the Scripture. We're just given uh, bits and pieces here and there from which we, ha- we can derive a framework for understanding the angelic conflict. It's not everything we would like to know about angels and demons, but it's enough to where we can form a, a, a theology, a doctrine, a teaching that keeps us within bounds. The problem that we have as human beings is we always want to know everything there is to know about something. We want to, so there's a lot of speculation that comes along with regard to angels and and demons. And you can flip around, if you want to be entertained sometime, you can flip around on a number of the religious channels, and you will find a lot of deliverance evangelistic evangelist types that are uh, on television, and they're stomping out the devil and all these other kinds of things and casting demons out of anybody and everybody who thinks they have one, and thinking that Christians can be demon-possessed and everything. And all of this is based on pure uh, two things. It's based on experience, and it's based on theater. They just want the drama and the excitement because they can use that to raise a lot of money. And it's amazing how many of these kinds of preachers and evangelists have been uh, caught uh, with incredible amounts of money, and they have a lot of problems as a result of that. That doesn't mean every one of them is that way, but it certainly has happened uh, to quite a few of them. But the Bible does teach that there are invisible beings called angels and that they have a primary role, which is indicated by their name, of being messengers from God, which means that they carry out God's will as God is uh, governing and overseeing the the operations of the universe, all the physical laws and everything else, behind the scenes, God's angels are working to make all of that happen. And they are involved in overseeing the mechanics of, of, uh, of the physical laws that God has put into place. And they are also involved in overseeing and watching human history and that human history is directly related to the the fall of Satan and what we refer to as the angelic conflict or the angelic rebellion or Satan's rebellion, and that, that one of the reasons we say these are connected together, and you can't study human history apart from what the Bible says about this angelic conflict, is because of these verses that we're going to look at tonight. Uh, after Tommy and I wrote the book, Spiritual Warfare, which it surprises me that was 26 years ago, after we wrote that book, I was talking with a pastor friend who's got his doctorate from Dallas Seminary and is a, a respected theologian and pastor in his own right, and he asked me a question that, that had never occurred to me before, and he said, 
Uh, Robbie, why do you think it is that in Reformed theology, that is in Calvinist theology, there is very little written about angels or demons or spiritual warfare? Why is it that that's not part of their theology? So you can go back and you can read John Calvin, you can read uh, Bullinger, you can read Zwingli, you can go through the uh, up to Jonathan Edwards and to Charles Hodge and and um, Warfield and all of these uh, well-respected Reformed uh, Calvinist theologians. And part of the problem that you'll see is that they don't really talk much about angels. They don't talk much about the Holy Spirit in the church age either. That was something I discovered in doing uh, in, in doing research in a doctoral class on pneumatology when I when I was in seminary. Now, after the in the the development of the charismatic movement, which emphasizes both the Holy Spirit and angels, a lot of pressure was put on uh, the Pre- Presbyterians and the Calvinists to start talking about these things. So in the 20th century, you'll find theologies written that talk more about angels and the Holy Spirit. But when I, uh, when I was taking, um, when I was taking, uh, this class on, this seminar on pneumatology, uh, one of the things that I did was to look at two of what was considered by erudite theologians to be the two classic works on the Holy Spirit. One was written by John Owens, who was the, the uh, uh, chaplain to Oliver Cromwell in the mid-1600s in England, uh, his work on the Holy Spirit. And the other one was, was a work uh, written by uh, a Cal- Dutch Reformed Calvinist, I think it was Herman Bavink, on the work of the Holy Spirit. And um, as a result of that, that study... I realized they never talked about the baptism of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, or any of those dimensions to the Christian life. They were just ignored. And then when you got into the 20th century, you would look at a few, and they would uh, they would talk about these other things. So, so this question was posed, why is it that Reformed theology basically ignores the angelic conflict? And the answer is, uh, going back to understanding the difference between covenant theology and dispensationalism, remember I said dispensationalists believe there are three things that are the core beliefs in dispensationalism. And what are they? A literal, plain interpretation of Scripture, number one. As a result of that, you have a distinction between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church. And the third distinctive that Ryrie emphasized was that dispensationalism sees the overriding theme or the overriding purpose of of all of history, which would include angelic history, is the glory of God. In contrast, in Reformed theology, the overriding purpose of God is re- of history is redemption. Are angels redeemed? No. So because they have a more narrow understanding of the purpose of history is only redemption, this means that when they approach the Bible, they've already got some blinders on that cause them to sort of ignore the role of angels. So even though they believe in angels and they have a minimal angelology, they don't connect the two because their view of the purpose of history as redemptive limits them from talking about angels because since angels aren't redeemed, it doesn't fit within their framework. So this is one of those important areas uh, to distinguish in, in history. So when dispensationalism comes along, you find that certain men like Donald Gray Barnhouse, who came out of a pre- strong Presbyterian Reformed background, in fact, most of the early dispensationalists were strong Calvinists from John Nelson Darby to Schofield to, to uh, uh, Chafer, uh, they came out of Presbyterianism, including Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in in uh, Philadelphia and had a nationwide radio ministry. We're talking the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s. And he wrote a classic book on spiritual warfare called The Invisible War. 
but what gives him the understanding was uh, of the importance of angels in spiritual warfare wasn't the Calvinistic background that he had, but when, when he becomes a dispensationalist, it opens up uh, the understanding to focus on the role of angels in Satan. So what we see uh, referenced here in 1 Peter 1.12 is that angels desire to look into these things. That is, the, the role of suffering that leads to the the leads to glorification. That's what gets emphasized throughout this section by Peter is that suffering is necessary uh, on the path to, glorif- to the glorification of God. And these terms are, are used several times. For example, in verse 8, talking about Jesus, whom we haven't seen, you love, though now you do not sing, yet, be- yet by believing you rejoice with joy, and that by believing isn't phase one, it's phase two, trusting in the provisions of Christ in order to handle the fiery trials. Yet by believing, you're able to rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So that connects this to the glorification. Now the words that are used here, the word for desire is the word epithemeo, uh, which is tr- accurately translated desire, and it can refer to illicit desires and lust patterns, or it can refer to positive desires. That's something that you are um, legitimately to want and to desire. So it, it, it shows this volition. They desire, they want to look into this. And the word that's translated to look into is the word paracupto. And it means to look through something in the sense of a thorough analysis, and it has the a physical sense to it to indicate that this is something that you don't just kind of glance at, but you lean over, you stoop down, and you take a more disciplined, intense examination and look at something. And so it's the idea that they desire to look at something, examine it, and to thoroughly understand it. And this word paracupto is used in three passages that are significant at this season because tomorrow is Good Friday, Sunday is Resurrection Day, and that word is used in uh, Luke 24, 12, and John 20, verse 5, and 20, 11. Luke 24:12 and John 25 both refer to what happens when Peter and John run to the tomb after they have been told that that the Lord's the Lord's body was no longer there. Peter arose and ran to the tomb and stooping down he he looks inside. So that's the word paracupto to stoop down so you can look more intently at something. In John 25 when Peter uh when uh, we see John, he, John, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, and he didn't go in. And then Peter came in and stooped down, and he went on in. Uh, so that's the idea that we see in this, this verb. John twenty eleven. Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. That's the idea. It's make, taking time for a more thorough examination. But one usage is really Important, and that's in James 1.25, where James says the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty. This isn't somebody who's just taking a glance at Scripture. This isn't somebody who just opens their Bible on Sunday morning. And, uh, but this is somebody who is not only uh, studying the Word, listening to a pastor uh, exposit the Scriptures verse by verse, but is taking the time on their own to read and to study, to learn how to study the Bible, and to uh, carry on personal Bible study into the Scripture. Somebody who is deeply involved in investigating the meaning of Scripture. So this is the idea that we have when the text says that these are things which angels desired to look into. So we need to look at some other passages so that we can understand the whole breadth of this particular doctrine. So I want you to turn, first of all, 
to Luke chapter 15. We're going to look, bounce around a little bit through some different passages, but we're going to go to Luke 15. And Luke 15 is a passage that you'll recognize because of the third parable. There are three parables that are told in Luke chapter 15, and sometimes they are misunderstood. And I would suggest that some of you might have been mistaught on portions of this particular chapter. There are three parables, and it's usually referred to as uh, the, the three parables about lost things, the three parables about lost things. And the first parable is the parable of the lost sheep. The second parable, beginning in verse 8, is the parable of the lost coin. And the third parable is the parable you're most familiar with, the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. And when we look at at these, these passages, it's important to understand the context. Now, there are those who treat these parables, sometimes the first two parables, as if this is talking about phase one salvation, that because they talk about um, the, the, the sh- there's one sheep that's lost, and as soon as we hear that word lost, we're sort of pre-programmed by our evangelical culture to think this means they're not saved. And and in the second parable, the woman loses a coin, so it's a lost coin, so that must be talking about someone who's unsaved. But when you get to the third one, that's a, a, a parable you've heard many times uh, being taught as, as, as a, a parable about fellowship, not about the someone being unsaved, that the two sons are both part of the family of the, of the man, and the younger son goes off on his own, takes his inheritance, and squanders it. He never, he is never um, outside of the family. He may be in rebellion against his father. He may be out on his own in in the pigsty, but he is still part of the family. He's a picture of a rebellious believer. So when we go back and we look at the first two, we see that the text makes it very clear that these are talk, this is talking about believers. And in Luke chapter 15, verse 1, this is par- parallel to um, Matthew chapter 9, where we've studied before, uh, and also in Matthew, uh, Matthew 18, talking about the lost sheep, that the shepherd is uh, analogous uh, to the father. Uh, and the sheep are all sheep. They're not goats. So the context is set up in verses 1 and 2 that the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying that this man receives sinners and eats with them. So they're being extremely self-righteous, and they're uh, judging Jesus because he is, is associating with sinners. Now, the term sinners does not necessarily mean an unbeliever. It can mean somebody who is rebellious against God. So Jesus tells this tells these parables. What man of you having a hundred sheep? So see, right away we see that the man who represents the father owns the sheep. All right? So that means that they're all his originally. And he goes on to say, if he loses one of them, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls to his friends and says, rejoice with me, for I have found what? My sheep. Okay, it's not a sheep that was owned by somebody else or a goat that somehow now becomes his. That would be a picture of salvation. This is a picture of restoration. This is a picture of a believer being restored uh, to the flock in terms of, of fellowship. But what I want to point out in terms of, of this passage is in verse 7, he says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Now, that's not getting justified. That is a believer who is turning back to God, who is confessing sin. This is not talking about justification, but uh, sanctification. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need 
no repentance. So the point here is that that heaven rejoices. Now, who is in heaven? This is a figure of speech. Heaven is an impersonal thing. It is a place. So when the text says that there is joy in heaven, it's talking about those who inhabit heaven are having joy. Now, there's a reason I'm putting it that way. We'll come back to this later on. Heaven is merely the place that is put for those who dwell there, those who live there, those who inhabit it, and that's the angels. Now, in the second parable, it's a parable of the lost coin, and we read, Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, doesn't light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. So she already owns the ten coins. They're hers. She's not getting one that she didn't already own. That indicates, again, it's something that is hers, and there's a recovery process taking place here, not a justification process. So when she found it, she called her friends and neighbors together and said, Rejoice with me, for I found the piece which I lost, indicating she owned it initially. And then the last verse, which is up on the screen, Likewise, I say to you, this is Jesus drawing the principle, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is talking about someone who turns back to God. The whole idea in in the Old Testament of shuv, of, which we've studied before, of, of turning to God, uh, turning away from disobedience and toward God, in obedience. So this first example tells us that the angels are watching believers, and when believers are out of fellowship and in rebellion, they are aware of that, and then they observe how God works to bring us back to himself. And when that rebellious believer turns back to God, then they rejoice in heaven. So each time we confess our sins, each time we turn back to God, each time we we shift our walk from the uh, path of death or carnality to the path of life and walking by the Spirit, the the angels rejoice. They cheer for us. So that is that's the backdrop for that particular uh, passage. Now the next passage I want to look at is in First Timothy. So turn with me to First Timothy. And all the T verse T books go together. First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, then First Timothy, Second Timothy, and then Titus. So all the T books are together. In First Timothy chapter chapter three, it, it begins talking about the qualifications for the leaders in the church, the bishop or the pastor, and secondly the deacons. And then, in, and we have to understand that's the context here. It's talking about qualifications for those in leaders, leadership. And then as Paul transitions to his next topic in verse 14, he says, uh, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write to you so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God. So he uses that phrase, house of God, to refer to the local church. How are you to conduct yourselves? Well, you're to have two categories of leaders, uh, elders, bishops, or pastors. The terms were uh, used interchangeably. And, and deacons, that things should be done in order. So this is how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the assembly, ecclesia, the assembly of the living God, uh, the pillar and ground of the truth. And then in verse 16, he says this. Now, this is in the King James Version, which translates it very awkwardly and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, that word without controversy is a word that's familiar to most of you. It's the Greek word homo legeo as a participle. Now, where do we find homo legeo? First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins. So homo legeo means to confess. And so probably the best translation here is what we find in the New American Standard. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And then there's a pause, and there is like a poetic insert 
God was manifest in the flesh, or uh, New American Standard says, He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, uh, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So these uh, these statements all are related to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a verse that is focusing on the hypostatic union. The mystery is that revelation of the second person of the Trinity in human flesh. So we need to talk about this a minute because there's a lot more going on here than we think about. In that opening line, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness, this word godliness is a lot like our word holiness, which we're going to get ready to get into when we get into the next uh, two or three verses in First Peter. It's one of those words that is used so much in Christianity that it loses its meaning because people don't take the time to go back and look up words in a dictionary. So what does this word godliness mean Anyway, and that's not necessarily an easy, easy thing to, to talk about. Uh, the word, the Greek word is, you, you see up there on the screen, is eusebea. And this is formed by an eu prefix. Now, in Greek, an eu prefix indicates that you're taking a, the, whatever the main word is, and you're adding something that is positive or beneficial to it. For example, you can have a saying about something with someone which would be uh, a logos, a statement. Logos means word. So you'd have a statement about somebody, and you would call it a logos. But if it's a positive statement about somebody, it becomes a eulegeo, a eulogy a positive statement about the person. So eusebeia is talking about something positive in terms of this root word, sebeia, <clears throat> and the verb the verb is sebomai, and it means to the core semantic meaning has the idea of keeping your distance from somebody. So when it comes to applying this to deity, it has the idea of uh, showing reverence to God, shrinking back in fear or worship. And so that has this idea of something that is devoted to God and something that uh, is is fearful of God. There's another compound word that uses the prefix theos for God, theosabeia. And that is close in meaning to eusabeia. It describes a person's attitude toward the divine, the attitude they have towards God. In the Greek New Testament, this idea of eusebeia has this idea of someone who is uh, walking closely with God, someone who is showing, has a life that shows that they honor and they reverence God. In English, they try to capture this by adding the, the uh, L-Y suffix, which usually implies an adverb, but in in Old English, if something is like something, they would say it's God-like, okay, or Christ-like, and that got contracted to godly, okay, and you find this in, in other words. So godliness in English really goes back to the meaning of God-likeness. And that's what we're talking about here is the spiritual life is the process whereby the believer learns to imitate Christ, to live his life in imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is supposed to be Christ-like. Romans 8, 28 and 29 says that we're to be, we are predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of Christ. We, that's God's destiny for us is to be Christ-like, to be conformed to his image. So the mystery of the spiritual life here, the mystery of, of uh, Eusebia, is the mystery of being like Christ. It is the mystery of the spiritual life. That's why I often translate this word Eusebia as just our spiritual life because it, it focuses and drives us towards being like Christ and being... Con- conform to his image. 
So when we look at this, uh, we see that, that Paul is saying uh, that this is the mystery of the spiritual life to be Christ-like. We have to understand who Jesus Christ is in his person. We have to understand the role of the humanity of Christ in terms of setting that standard and that pattern for what the individual believer's spiritual life should be like. And he uses this word mystery because the word mystery doesn't refer to trying to figure out a riddle or a whodunit, but in, in Greek thought, a mystery was a previously unrevealed truth. And the idea that God would become man and enter into human history in the way it happened with Jesus Christ, so that as John says in, in John one fourteen that Jesus is the exegete or the one who reveals the Father. No one has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten has revealed him. That's the mystery, that we could only know God through the incarnate Jesus Christ. And so we have passages uh, in the Gospels that talk about this. I mean, in the epistles that talk about this. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, Paul says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. See, he's talking about in the passage in context, in Ephesians 5, he's talking about the marriage between husband and wife and how that mirrors the relationship of Christ and the church. And he said, this is the mystery that is the mystery of the relationship between Christ and the church. This was not revealed in the Old Testament because the mystery of the hypostatic union could not be understood. In 1 Timothy 3.9, Paul says, We are holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. That's in 3.9 in relation to the qualifications of a deacon. A deacon is to hold on to, he's to grasp, he's to have an understanding of this previously unrevealed um, teaching about the faith, that it centers on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is then described in verse 15 at the end as the pillar and ground of the truth. Then we can also look at two verses in Colossians one twenty-seven and Colossians two two that also talk about mystery, and they connect this to the, also to the person of Christ. In Colossians one twenty-seven, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What is that mystery? That mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What, what is happening to the church? This had never happened before in human history, that, that God indwelt man. And in this, Christ is the one indwelling the believer. Colossians 2.2, 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. So this, again, connects us to a previously unrevealed uh, doctrine related to Christ and how the eternal second person of the Trinity could enter into human history. All of that helps us to understand uh, that that this mystery is the person of Christ. But what does that verse go on to say? In the whole context, it says, he, was, he who was revealed in the flesh, that would be the incarnation of Christ, was vindicated by the Spirit in his spiritual life. He was seen by angels. That's what we're looking at. So angels were watching the Lord Jesus Christ in hypostatic union, in his humanity, as he lived his spiritual life, laying down the precedence for the spiritual life of the church age. Okay, back to the next point. Um, the third point, what we see, is that angels are observing believers. They learn from us, and they are watching us. They learn about God. They learn about grace. They learn about God's justice, things that were not uh, something they would learn in terms of God's plan for the angels. And we see this in three basic passages, 1 Corinthians 4.9, Ephesians 3.10 and 1 Timothy 5.21. In 1 Corinthians 4.9 we read, 
uh, Paul saying, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. We have been made a spectacle to the world, uh, both to, uh, to the angels and to men. So he is saying that as apostles, they have come under specific scrutiny by the angels as well. They've been made a spectacle, and that's the word theatron, which is where we get our word theater. And it is to, uh, sometimes places it's translated theater, some places it has the idea of being made a display or a spectacle, but this is the, uh, this is the drama of the ages that is being presented before the angels, and they are watching us on the stage. We are a spectacle to angels and to men. Now, in Ephesians 3.10, we see something else again. Uh, we see the statement that Paul makes to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the church known by the church, excuse me, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Now, that phrase, principalities and powers, is a term that refers to a hierarchy, a chain of command within the angelic ranks, those who live in the heavens. So the angels are living in the heavenly places. So again, he doesn't say angels. He talks about their place of habitation, but he's not he's using that as a figure of speech to talk about the inhabitants of heaven not just as an impersonal uh, location now to get the context here is important in ephesians 3:9 paul says to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery so again, we're back talking about this mystery doctrine, something that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament but now has been revealed in the New Testament, primarily through the Apostle Paul, but also, as we'll see, this mystery doctrine, even though it's not used as such, is also revealed as spiritual life principles are revealed in even the uh, Jew, so-called Jewish epistles, First Peter, Second Peter, James, and Hebrews. Uh, to make all see the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God. See, that's the idea from, from creation, from Adam, all the way up until Jesus Christ is incarnate. The, 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 the fact of the creation of the church as a unique body of believers was not revealed. And only later in Jesus' ministry does he begin to uh, reveal it to his disciples, and they don't get it. It's, it's just little bitty increments here and there until you get to the um, the upper room discourse when he begins to really teach them about what is about to happen after the cross. So the mystery was hidden in God who created all things through Christ throughout all of the Old Testament all the way up until just about the end of Christ's ministry. To the intent... So this was the purpose of hiding that mystery to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. It was not made known in all this, this extent of God's wisdom was not made evident in the Old Testament, but it has now been made evident. It has now been revealed to us. This is remarkable. We have knowledge and information that no one in the Old Testament had, that Abraham didn't understand, Moses didn't understand, David didn't understand, none of the prophets understood, that it, so that this would be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. They only learn this by observing us. They learn it by watching the church. Now, <clears throat> one last passage here indicating that we're watched by the angels. As Paul is um, about to, he's nearing the end of his first imprisonment, but he's he's been slightly rebuking Timothy for being a little timid and not being strong enough in his pastorate. He says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels. Notice the order there. God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the elect angels, that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing without partiality. He lists three things. Something I just recently learned is this just shows how how much 
Paul's rabbinic training influenced him. Rabbis loved to list things in groups of three, sort of like dispensationists, like seven points. Uh, they group things in groups of three, and you find this all throughout uh, Paul's writings where he groups things in groups of three. That was that's evidence of his uh, deep rabbinic training. So you have, he says, "I charge you before God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the elect angels." Now, where does God the Father have his abode? Heaven. Where does the Lord Jesus Christ have his abode now? In heaven. Where do the angels live? In heaven. Now, what is Paul doing here? Is he is calling upon the inhabitants of heaven to be a witness to what he is charging Timothy with. Okay, so he's, he's saying, I charge you before heaven. We could paraphrase it that way. And what he would mean is not, not heaven as a spatial object, but the inhabitants of heaven. He says, I charge you before heaven that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing without partiality. Now, this again is so Old Testament. This is so Jewish. We just have to go back to Deuteronomy and we'll see this. In Deuteronomy 4.26, what does Paul say as he is charging the, the, uh, uh, the uh, conquest generation with his final words before he dies, he says, I call upon heaven and earth to witness against you. It's a legal testimony. What's required in the law to confirm something? Two witnesses. Heaven. Doesn't mean the spatial heaven. It means the inhabitants of heaven, which are who? The angels. And earth. Doesn't mean the physical earth, the geological earth, the land, he's talking about the inhabitants of the earth. You have two witnesses. He's calling upon the angels in heaven and humanity to witness this. So again, it's showing that there's this evidence even in the Old Testament that the angels are watching. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you. Now, physical places like the earth can't be a witness the inhabitants can be. So I, I've made this point all the way through that this is a figure of speech where the place is put for the inhabitants of the place. And then Deuteronomy 32.1, again, Moses says, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Physical spatial location doesn't hear. He's talking about the inhabitants of those, of those locations. So we see that the Angels in heaven are witnesses of what's going on in human history. Now, a fourth thing we learn from Scripture is that not only do the elect angels watch us, but the demons watch us, that Satan has organized his, uh, his de- demonic forces to hinder and to block church-age believers from living out their spiritual life. Uh, it's clear that Satan's demons are intimately involved in watching believers. One of the classic passages is the passage on spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, uh, 12 through 17. Paul says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The battle, folks, is not against the Democrats and the pagans. The battle is not against the atheists and the secularists. The battle ultimately is against the forces of wickedness and the forces of darkness, the forces of Satan. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Remember when we studied Revelation, they're not kicked out of heaven. The demons and Satan are not kicked out of heaven until halfway through the tribulation. So what what is a poor little Christian supposed to do about this? Verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Notice it's using the same language. And then 614 starts off, Stand therefore. This is defensive language. The idea is you've got an army and you've got, you've got two battalions. You've got one whose, whose role and responsibility is to hold their ground and stand firm. And the other battalion is your battalion that has, that is going to maneuver and 
is going to execute an offensive action against the attacking force. The church, the believers, are to stand firm in one place, and the Lord Jesus Christ is the other battalion that is going to attack from the flank. The reason is, is because we're fighting an invisible enemy. We can't see them. There's no way that we can comprehend or understand what the enemy is doing. So we do what we're ordered to do, and that is to take up a defensive posture. We're not going out there, and we're not going to give the devil a black eye. We're not going to stomp on the devil. We're not going to be engaged in this kind of offensive tactics. Everything that we read in Ephesians chapter 6 is talking about uh, defense. It is putting on the full armor of God. That's the word panoply. We don't see it too much um, anymore. Uh, you sing it in a few hymns, and it means uh, the panoply of God, the full armor of God. So we are to stand there for having girded your waist with truth. We're going to see that same imagery in uh, in First Peter. In the next couple of verses that we're to gird up our loins, it means to take a robe or whatever hinders us and you pull it up out of the way and tie it off so you won't stumble on it. You gird up your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now on this slide, I want to go back and talk about these words, withstand, stand in verse 13 and stand therefore in verse 14. The word withstand is the word antistemi. The root is histemi, the second word that's up here on the slide. It just has anti against it. So histemi means to stand. Antistemi means to stand against. It's just an intensified form of the, of the idea to stand in place. And that they are these two defensive terms. But again and again and again, we see this is the role of the believer. It doesn't say attack the devil. It says stand firm. And then in verse 17, skipping a couple of verses, we're to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, if you look down in front of me, in front of the pulpit, you'll see that there is a Roman machaira there. That's the Greek word that is uh, used here for sword, and it refers to the short sword of the Roman soldier. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that the Roman that I've just recently learned is the Roman short sword was not used uh, to parry. It's a two-edged sword, so you don't use it to parry uh, an attack from the enemy. You're not fighting with the edge of the sword. You're not using it to cut and slash because what happens if you have your shield in your left arm and you have your machaira in your right hand, and you're going to hack or cut, what are you going to do as soon as you raise the sword up? You've exposed and made your whole right side vulnerable. If you're going to to slash, again, as you rear back, you're exposing your left side. The Roman short sword was used only to penetrate. It was used only to stab. And what happens when you stab? When you stab, you pierce the organs. A slashing, cutting movement would uh, wound the enemy, but it wouldn't be a fatal wound. But if you penetrate two or three inches, it's going to create a fatal wound. And it will penetrate to the heart or to the uh, vital organs. This is what we see in the imagery in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So this is what we use the word of God. This is claiming promises, mixing promises with faith, is using the word of God to pierce the enemy, just as Jesus did in the wilderness temptations. Now, another thing we need to look at in understanding how we're being observed by by Satan are passages that we see from the oldest book of the Bible up through uh, the New Testament. In Job, we're told that, that Satan leaves heaven and he wanders around looking for Christians who are vulnerable. Uh, Job 1.6 says there was a day when the sons of God, that would be all the angels, fallen and elect, 
came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. Job 2, 1, a second incident. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro like a roaring lion on the earth. No, he didn't say that there, but that's the same image that he has there. He's going to and fro on the earth, walking back and forth on the earth. What Peter refers to at the end of 1 Peter, uh, when he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's what was going on in Job. And he lights on Job as a, a target, just as he lights on believers. Now, Satan is not omnipresent. So Satan doesn't necessarily do all of this himself. He has all of his demons, and he is a master of delegating authority, and they're involved in uh, observing and recording all of our behavior. So they are intimately involved in watching us as well so that they can hinder our spiritual growth. Now, the last point, the last couple of points I want to make is, uh, first of all, that Satan's major objective is twofold. One towards believers, and, I mean, one towards unbelievers, one towards believers. In 2 Corinthians 4 4, we're told that toward unbelievers, the God of this age, another title for Satan, has blinded. That's his job, is to blind the unbeliever to truth. Now, this shows the error in the Calvinist doctrine, since we started off talking about Calvinism in our joke this earlier. Um, if, if men are totally to, have total inability as opposed to total depravity, total inability means that man is unable to understand or respond to the gospel. If man is totally unable because of his sin nature to understand or respond to the gospel, why does Satan need to blind the minds of the unbeliever? They're already blind, according to Calvinist doctrine. That's not what we believe. We believe in total depravity, which means that all of man's being is corrupted by sin, not that man is totally unable to respond to general revelation. Luke 8.12 when Jesus gives the parable of the sower, he says those seeds that are cast by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. So he is involved in blocking the gospel and blinding the unbeliever. But Satan also has a, um, an, a, a tactic, a strategy to attack believers. And this is seen in, in a couple of the letters to the seven churches in the first part of Revelation. Uh, to the letter to Smyrna, he says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you're rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. These are believers who have totally succumbed to the pagan thinking of the world. And a couple of verses later, he says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That is referring to the pagan idolatrous worship in Smyrna. And then to the church at Thyatira, uh, we read, Now to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. In other words, you see this attack against the church that is energized by by Satan. And the way he does this, one way he does this is described in 2 Corinthians 11:14 and 15 that he transforms himself into an image of light. Like the angel who appeared to uh, Muhammad in the cave in in in, in Arabia. Uh, this was Satan appearing as an angel of light, just like the angel Moroni that appeared to Joseph Smith on uh, at Palmyra in New York. This is Satan's deception. Uh, Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers, that is the demons, also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. So what's our solution? James 4, 7, and 8. Therefore, submit to God and resist the devil. That's that same word we saw in the uh, in, in Ephesians uh, 6, 12, and following, to stand firm. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
doesn't say attack the devil. Just says resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a promise. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is talking about confession of sin. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. How do you cleanse your hands and purify your hearts? We're cleansed through confession, through confession of sin. So the key is to walk with God and God's going to protect us. When we're not walking with God, we've moved outside of the sphere of protection and we have exposed ourselves spiritually to be attacked and tempted by Satan and the demons and to be destroyed by the thinking of the cosmic system. So that wraps up our introduction to um, the introductory section of 1 Peter 1, and we'll start in the main body next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be reminded that we live in the midst of a of an open arena where we're observed by the angels, the elect angels as well as the fallen angels, and that we are our lives are to be a testimony uh, before the angels, demonstrating your grace and your goodness and your righteousness, uh, demonstrating that you are God who is true to his word and who provides for us and protects us and whose grace is sufficient for us. Uh, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this and that we might not uh, fall prey uh, to the fiery darts of the evil one and that we might use your word to constantly protect us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.